we're looking at the book of John, and last week we looked at the prologue of John. And in the prologue, we discovered a few things, uh, three truths that were just powerful. The first one being that Jesus was from the beginning. He was not created. He was before all of creation. He was and is and always will be. Then we saw that he was also part of creation, that he created. Not only was he before creation, but he was also creating so it means that he's also not only the one who was before creation, he also was a part of creation, he created, which also means he can be new in creation now, and he creates what is new. Where in the world does my sermon go? It's like a pizza. I know, thank you. Sorry about that, guys. Not awkward at all. All right. We saw that Jesus is the Logos, the force that gives meaning to all of reality. We saw that John, the reason John is professing all this and even writing this book is that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. So last week I shared how there were many commentaries divide the book, the gospel of John into two parts. The first part is entitled, the first one is entitled the book of signs, the second one, the book of glory. So what is a sign and why is it significant? This is a quote by Kostenberger, and it says this, A sign in John is a symbol-laden, but not necessarily miraculous, public work of Jesus, selected and explicitly identified as such by John for the reason that it displays God's glory in Jesus, who is thus shown to be God's true representative. Signs point to God's glory displayed in Jesus, thus revealing Jesus is God's authentic representative. The acceptance of the genuineness of Jesus' signs should lead to the acceptance of Jesus' messianic mission. In other words, signs are vehicles through which God's glory is revealed. John's gospel also reflects the Jewish expectation that both the coming prophet and the Messiah would perform signs to prove their divine commission. This is kind of a common idea, common language, even though it's not said this way for us. We see this in pop culture. The idea of a sign pointing towards a promised coming hero the sword and the stone, the broken shard bearer who brings healing, the one that was coming for whom Trinity would fall in love with, the sign of one who will bring order to the force. I wanted to see how many of you guys got all the nerd references there. Did everybody get every one of those references? All right, just, just how, how nerdy everybody is. Thank you. <laughs> Easier this way. All right, really quickly. Just to see who, if anybody got a mom. Who got the one about Trinity and the one they felt the one? All right, Matrix, all right, okay. Sword in the Stone? Yeah, Arthur? Broken Shard Bearer, who brings healing? Say it again? That's right, Aragorn. Um, the one who brings uh, unity to the force, order to the force? Yeah. I just want to see how nerdy of a church we are. Our scripture today is earmarked by a pair of references in Cana, and these are all important signs that shout out who Jesus is. These three chapters from the kind of two to the end of four, according to Carson, shout out what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old has gone, the new has come. So if you have your Bibles, you already turned there, John chapter two. We're in the second chapter of John's gospel, and this is his first miracle story. The first miracle story is something that happens at a wedding. But there's something deeply, deeply significant about what happens at this wedding, even though it seems like one of the most random and weird miracles of all time to perform. And when you think of miracles, you're thinking miracles like blind person seeing. You're like, that's a miracle. Anybody watch Fiddler on the Roof? Anybody ever see Fiddler on the Roof? Gina and I just saw it yesterday. 
love Fiddler on the Roof, one of my favorite things. And there's a cheesy song that I love so much. And this guy goes, wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. I just wanted to sing that. Um, talks about when David slew Goliath and Daniel and the lions and all these miracles. And it was a miracle that he let me, you fall in love with me today. It was kind of like the line of the th- song there. When we think of miracles, we think of big things. I think of the healing of the blind, the raising of the dead, or the part of the Red Sea. I do not think of water and wine as a miracle. But this is very significant. There are four markers that help us understand the nature of this sign that Jesus gives and that John's relating in this story. The first has to do with this little reference at the beginning of chapter two, that this was the third day. Now here's the deal, that shouldn't be significant in in other parts. Uh, In Mark, he talks about days and chronology all the time. But in John, only in the very first two chapters does he ever mention Google chronology. There's something important, there's something significant here, at least I believe, I'm one of those that believe that it is. That in the first chapter and now to the second chapter, John has been giving us a fairly careful note of the sequence of days. Not in in the rest of his book, but just in the first two chapters. Now, John doesn't do that elsewhere in the gospel. He doesn't seem to be fixated about what day it is as he is here in the very beginning. So if you go back to chapter one, the first reference to the day is verse 29, and then that's the next day. So the first day is before verse 29. What happens before verse 29 at the calling of incident with John the Baptist is the first day. Then in verse 29, we got the next day. Then in verse 35, we got this is the next day. John was standing with two of his disciples and so on. Then you've got in verse 39 a reference to the fact that the third day has actually ended and the fourth day has begun because it was about the 10th hour. And then in verse 43, you've got another day. This is day five. And in verse one of chapter two, the third day, and in the inclusive way that Hebrews thought of days, that's the seventh day. So if you're confused about it, don't worry about it. It's okay, you can be confused. But there's some Bible scholars and commentators that think this is um, beside the point that there's no really, nothing significant here. But I'm one of those who believes that John is giving us a fairly pointed reference to the passing of the days for a reason. So that we come to the story of this miracle of Cana and Galilee, we're actually on the seventh day. Now, if you guys remember last week, I said that in the language John uses at the beginning, in the beginning, was the word. That he was intentionally pointing everybody back to Genesis. You guys remember I said that last week? Yes? No, that's okay. John has in mind, in his writing of the gospel narrative, the opening two chapters of the book of Genesis. Remember, in the beginning was the word. It sounds like the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says, though, John has the first page of Genesis open before him. And you know when you're trying to write something, when you try to write a sermon, you have like these commentators, you have all these books out before him. That's what it feels like. You feel like John literally has the book of Genesis out in front of him. And yes, he's being divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's writing as if the book of Genesis is before him. He wants to kind of say, hey, Jesus is the beginning. But John is thinking of chapters one and two of Genesis. Why is that significant? It's significant because on the seventh day, God rested from the work of creation. And now John might be saying to us, on this seventh day, he performs a new creation. Think of it, here in this chapter, he's going to make new wine. In just a few verses, he's going to talk about building a new temple. In John 3, he's going to talk to Nicodemus about new birth. In John 4, with the woman at the well, he's talking about a new way of worshiping. So what we have here is John's version of what D.A. Carson quoted in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, then that person enters a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And in a way, that's what the sign that John is giving to us, the new creation. You're longing for this new creation. I'm longing for the new creation. 
Every time I hear about atrocities that we as people commit and horrors that occur in the world around us, I crave a new creation. I desire all that is wrong to be made right, this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And the miracles of Jesus are a bit like a foretaste, a little snapshot of that new creation. He's saying on the seventh day, he, Jesus, is the one that can make it new. The end is bursting forth into the present, the now in which we live. And here's a little taste of it. In creating this new wine on the seventh day, the creator himself, the eternal word of God, had come to that wedding in Canaan and Galilee to announce that he can make everything new. So we're here. He can come. He can come to a wedding in Cana and Galilee to make something new, but he can also come to Chapel Hill, to Durham, to Raleigh, to where you are, wherever you are, whatever's going on with you, and make something new. So that first marker of this that we see significance, the first marker is the sequence of days. The second marker is the way Jesus addresses his mother. The wine has run out. Mary is kind of in a tizzy. And I like to use that word in a tizzy because there's a book called Llama Llama Red Pajama, but I'm just saying. She's in a tizzy and she goes to her son and says to him, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My, my hour has not yet come. Now, I don't know about you, but I couldn't speak to my mother like that. My Korean mother, mm-mm. I don't know if you know the in Korean, there's like three different ways to be like really formal about your saying mother. You know, not just like, it's not just like mother. You know, it's, it's like mother high and mother higher. Like it's just this weird ways of, like proper ways of saying stuff. And I could not speak to my mother like that. People in the South, we're in the South, right? You Southerners cannot talk to your mother like that, could you? <laughs> Mm-mm. I don't think you could ever talk to your mother. I don't think you ever should. So all you teenagers, don't ever say like Jesus did it. Right? Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't go to your mom and be like, woman. I'm telling you, don't do it. This, this is not the preacher telling you to do that. How is it right for Jesus to address his mother as woman? What is he trying to tell us? There, there is a good reason for it. It's, it's the book of Genesis again. It's not Genesis 1 and 2, but now he's turning the page. He's in Genesis 3. And what's significant about Genesis 3? It's the first gospel promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. Now, in many ways, there are many theologians and Bible commentators, and actually one of my professors at RTS, would say that the entire Bible could be exegeted, no matter where you are in the Bible, that the whole Bible can be exegeted in terms of that passage of Scripture. The whole thing. And I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong or right or anything, but that shows the significance of that one passage of Scripture. Is it fulfillment of the promise that God made to the woman? See, what Jesus is saying, he's saying to his mother, you are the woman of promise from Genesis 3.15. And I am that seed, the seed that has come into the world to crush the very head of Satan. What Jesus is saying in that discourse between him and his mother is, I'm not just your son to be ordered about, pressed as a mother would, but as mothers do their sons, but even when you're approaching that's just this idea of mothers should always be able to tell their kids what to do. Mothers have a way of doing it. My mother can look at me and still say, Lawrence, do this. Jesus is saying, I'm not just your son. I'm the son. I'm the son of promise. I'm the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And what's so remarkable about this is this proclamation that woman, you are the woman. Out of, whom you're, out of whom came the son of promise. So he's saying to her, woman, I am not just your son, because yes, if I was just your son, you can boss me around, I'm not gonna look at you and say woman. But I'm the son of promise, so I'm also your son and the son of promise. 
and in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And what's remarkable, what is so incredible is that Mary got it. Mary wasn't offended by what Jesus said. She got it. She's like, yep, that's who you are. She got it so much that she looks at all the the people around her and the servants and says, hey, just do whatever he says. Whatever he says, just do it. Because Mary, she thinks she's God, that this son of hers is is actually the son of promise. It's actually the same time the son of God, that actually the same time the creators of the heavens and the earth, the savior of sinners. He's a fulfillment of the great promise given to the woman. In the midst of the curse, a promise came that there will be a savior, that he will step and crush the head of the serpent. The third marker is the reference to the water jars. John tells us about these water jars in verse six. There were six stone water pots. They were there for Jewish custom of purification. Each pot contains 20 to 30 gallons each. So about 180 gallons of liquid. That's a lot of liquid. 180 gallons of liquid. So why six? Maybe it was just six, just no significance. It just happened to be six of them. It could be just end of story. But this is John who also wrote the book of Revelation, for whom the numbers have significance. You know the most significant number, of course, in the Bible, like, it's like people's lucky number, and they always say like seven is a holy number, right? Seven is the number of perfection, and the whole book of Revelation kind of hangs on this idea of the number seven. But also deeply significant is the number six. Wrongly, as people try to kind of assume, six means the devil. You know, oh, 666 means the devil and all the horror movies or scary pop culture elements is like 666 is so, it actually, honestly, it doesn't really mean the devil. It means more man. Does that make sense? The significance of number six is more like lineage of man versus the lineage of holiness of God. Now where I'm going with this, and this could be, might not be exactly where every commentator would go. The couple commentators did go this way with me, so I'm, I'm happy because this is where I went with it. Was this idea that here are the pots used for purification, pots that were used for ceremonies in the Old Testament, trying to get rid of sin and guilt. It's something that had to be repeated over and over again. There was no end to it. And now the creator of the heavens and the earth, the son of God, the seed of woman, is taking a symbol of an imperfect ceremonial system, making something new and fresh. He's taking the number of man, something that we can do on our own accord, something we try to do, say, how clean can I get? How clean can I get? How clean can I get? To say, no, 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 I'm taking what you use, this the system that doesn't work, and saying, I'm gonna take that system, the system of man, and give you something totally new, a system of God, and give you new wine out of what was old. At one level, John's giving us this, a glimpse into the story where he told us in chapter one that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. Here was a symbol of ceremonial law, these six water pots containing water for purification. So the law through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And he takes what was a ceremonial washing, what was used for man to try to find cleanliness and new creation, but didn't work. And Jesus said, I'm gonna turn that into a new creation. I'm gonna turn that into wine. He, something, he made something internally new. And out of the best endeavors of man, do you get this? I, I, guys, I want you to hear this very clearly. Out of all of our endeavors to try to be good, all of our endeavors to be clean, all of our endeavors to say, when I stand before God, at least I can say I did this or I did that, none of those things work. All the ceremonial washing, all the washing you do, none of it works. 
Not because you didn't try hard enough, not because of any of that, but because honestly there is a holy and just and righteous God who in his justice and his righteousness demands perfection. And only perfection will work, but in his grace and mercy, Jesus did something new. He died upon the cross for you so that he can still be perfect and just and holy, but also show incredible grace and love and mercy. This is not just some faraway story. This is not something for somebody else. This is for you and for me. This is why we need to be able to, when we sing, guys, can I tell you, when we were singing Amazing Grace earlier, my heart was overflowing, hearing all the voices coming together because Amazing Grace is so true because we are such utter wretches who, who try to so hard to act like we're clean, but inside we really know we're basking in our, in our dirtiness and we know we need Jesus so bad to make something new out of us. And that's what he does. And that's what we can say, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. There's a fourth marker. The fourth marker is the comment of the master of the feast. And there's this fourth comment here that I love this. It's, it's the comment the master of the feast says. and he, Very practical. He, he's the guy that was kind of telling the groom, hey, man, I don't know what you're doing here, buddy, but this wine is ridiculous. You know, like everybody, it's kind of smart, good strategy. Everybody serves the, the good wine first, but people don't care anymore. That's when you serve the bad wine. I don't know what you're doing here, but you kind of, you're doing it backwards, but I like it. That's what this guy is saying here. And it's a good thing. You know, maybe, <laughs> it's kind of weird, because I, I know some of you guys are kind of like a weird out. I don't know what kind of tradition you might have grown up in. You know, like if you grew up in like, like a fundamentalist, like staunch fundamentalist tradition, you're like, well, it wasn't real wine, okay? I'm not, I'm not gonna argue with you today, but it was. <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't wanna argue. I'm just gonna let you know it was. It was real wine. But I don't know what, it, but the point is, it's not a matter of like how much wine was somebody drinking. That's not the point. The point is what Jesus did in this moment was give Beauty and blessing, which is so much more expansive and so much greater than we could even hope for or imagine. That's what I want you to get here. He, the sheer extravagance of what Jesus does is what I want us to understand. That he doesn't just save us. Hear me very well. He doesn't just say, all right, check a box, you're saved. No, no, no. He gives us life and life abundantly. Do you hear that? He's not the prodigal father, and I say intentionally the prodigal father. He's not the prodigal father who just said, you know, he's, he's not the guy who's like, oh, well, my son's back. Well, okay, um, whatever, you're back, but you betrayed me, so just come and work hard and work with it. No, no, he's the prodigal father who says, here's my robe, here's my ring, kill everything, let's feast. He's expansive, he's lavish, he's extravagant. He loves and gives so much bigger, so much greater than we can ever hope for or imagine. That's who our God is. He's a good, good father. Not bare minimum father, extravagant father. That's what it means to have our sins forgiven, to have peace with God, to have relationship. We don't get just right standing, we actually get relationship that he is our good and just reward. We get him, we get all of him, we get to know him, we get to be known by him. And that's good, that's lavish, it's extravagant. And that is what we get, that's who we are. Guys, do you understand that the love of God for you is lavish? 
I love it in, in, uh, in First John, it says, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. I love that term, that word. I think it's the NIV that says that. It's how great is the love, First John chapter three, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God and that is what, who I am, that is what we are. Lavish love, extravagant love. That's what Jesus is doing here in this miracle. He says, I'm making all things new. And in this process of making new, it is lavish love. So that's what the picture of this wedding feast miracle is. And I love it. This, this feast, uh, this section of scripture is also bookended by the sign that happens in chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. And what we call this section is kind of like the section of the miracles in Cana and Galilee. And this is where the where Sarah read earlier, this, the Roman of the this official comes and says, my son is dying, will you heal him? From Cana to Cana, there are notable parallels between the first and second Cana signs. So I want to share them. In both stories, one, a need is expressed. Two, Jesus seems to offer resistance. Three, faith in his power persists. Four, Jesus deals with the matter in a manner different from what is requested and expected. Five, servants participate in the action. And six, some sort of faith results. And the mention of it concludes the narrative. But in each case, the faith is exhibited, seems to be in Jesus' power, out of full-blown faith in who he is. This is from one of the commentaries that showed the, like, the commonality. See, this section of scripture that we're using, we wanted to show the commonality between these two passages because we want to show how this subsection in the book of John goes together. These two stories uh, bookend this subsection that's basically Jesus using two signs and then what he does in between to show that he has come to make all things new. When he goes, goes to the temple, he says, I'm making a new temple. When he goes to the woman at the well, he says that you will worship in a new way. And when he heals this child, he says that I am the healer of sickness and death. What we have in this passage is a beautiful example of a pilgrimage of one man, one individual, this, this progress of faith um, of a particular individual. And it kind of has four stages that I want to just really dive into, and I'm going to kind of do this really quickly. Ultimately, what we see in these two stories is a sign that Jesus is Messiah. He makes new ceremonial laws into something beautiful, and he has the power to heal the body and make it new. Old ceremonial laws into something beautiful. So the first kind of, of the four stages of this individual in the story is one, faith is needed. First of all, the stage in which faith is required, this man's son is dying. He lives in um, Capernaum, and he's about 20 miles or so from Capernaum to Cana of Galilee. So nowadays, 20 miles is not very far, but back then, they didn't have our SUV, so on foot, it's a considerable distance to travel. So this man, as soon as he hears that Jesus is back in Cana, he rushes to get there. He wants to be where Jesus is. And what is striking is that the circumstances of this man's life have radically changed the priorities of his life. He's a nobleman. Uh, it's not hard to imagine that he made all sorts of kind of provisions for his son, for the welfare of his son. Official of Herod Antipas. But now, like the people at the wedding, like Nicodemus, like the woman at the well, he's come to appreciate there's nothing he can do to help his son. Kind of extremes will do that to you, won't it? Urgent situations, his son, is, his son is dying, and the nobleman has been reduced to kind of the one who used to give orders to a beggar. Isn't that kind of all of us at some point 
at one point or another. You know, that's what prayer is, actually. Prayer for us is reducing ourselves to one that comes as a beggar. Empty hands to plead at the feet, to plead at the feet of Jesus. Can I tell you something? One of the most dangerous things for so many of us is our self-sufficiency in this world we live in. One of the hardest things for us in the world we live in, in this kind of American successful build up wealth because you work really hard. And that's one of the, guys, hear me, one of the most amazing blessings about being in America is that there is a possibility of doing really well if you work hard. What an incredible blessing that is. And we thank God for that. But also one of the biggest dangers for us is that we have this understanding that if we work hard, we can do well. It's this self-sufficiency, this idea that we don't need God, we just need what, what we have. And every time we pray, and we pray sincerely, guys, this is a, a means, and this is why I believe so much, in, there's so many reasons to believe so much in prayer, but one of the most important habits for you to be in the habit and discipline of praying consistently is it also needs to show you your utter dependence upon God. Do you hear me? There's many reasons to pray. We believe it's God's will. This is what he chooses, his, his, his divine will of accomplishing his will. But here's the deal. It also shows us if we pray in earnestness, we pray earnestly and for real. When we pray, it also just makes those of us who feel so self-sufficient on our own realize more and more over and over again, we just need God. So I encourage all of you, even if you can't think of anything to pray for, to pray as a spiritual discipline. The second stage of this man is faith emerges. Notice what happens, the royal official won't be put off, even though he knows that it's God who's putting it off, he won't be put off. Matthew, um, later, um, actually, skipping over that, there's, um, there's a sense where he's, there's a dogged determination about this guy. He's saying, you know what, Jesus, I, I'm still coming to you. Even though you're putting me off, I'm still coming to you. This idea that, that like the Luke 18, the parable of the unfortunate widow, she will not be put off because of her, her, her persistence to judge grants her request. This stubborn persistence, this, this, this idea of this true faith that says Jesus is the only way and he's going to keep on going after it over and over, even though it's embarrassing, even though he's an official, even though he's been put off one time, he's going to keep on sticking to it. He's going to keep on going after it. There's a, notice, there's a change in the language of this nobleman between the first appeal and the second appeal. His first appeal goes like this, Jesus, come and heal my son because he's close to death. The second appeal says, come before he dies. Now, there'd be nothing in it, but I'd rather think that John is hinting to us that something has sharpened in the sense of priority in this nobleman that the, the one thing, so that the one thing needful is for Jesus to come, regardless of whether Jesus will heal him or not. Before he dies, he must have Jesus. I'd rather think that John is kind of alluding to this emergence of this nobleman's faith. He's not focusing not on the, he's not focusing on the signs and wonders anymore, but on Jesus and his child's need for Jesus. That's what faith is as it emerges. Faith is saying at its most basic and simple level, I need Jesus. And then faith becomes expressed. Not only the need of faith, not only the faith emerging, but faith expressed. The man says, come, uh, before my child dies, Jesus replied, your son will live, or your son lives. This word of promise, this man took at his word and he left believing that. See, guys, I want you to hear this. When faith comes, you can say you choose to believe, but faith actually expressed is what's important. Faith that actually says, yes, I choose to believe, now let me walk in that belief. You know, I, used, I use a chair illustration often. Do you guys know that like, if there's a chair right there, I can say I believe a chair will be there if I sit on it. 
But faith is actually taking that belief and saying, oh, no, let me just sit in the chair. Faith is the act of you actually sitting in the chair. Does that make sense? I liken it to marriage. It's one thing to say I love somebody. It's one thing I want to marry that person. But faith is taking a step that says I choose to actually be a part of life with that person, to live together, take the vows of covenant marriage together, and live life truly as a partner with that person. Faith is literally taking Jesus at his word and living it out. But then in the fourth stage, is faith is rewarded. The nobleman's on his way home. The servants are coming out to greet him. And you can imagine this scene. He's still miles away. The servants are miles away. And they come together. And they say, I mean, they're probably screaming, probably so happy. Can't wait to tell them the good news. Your son's alive. And he realizes at what time they said he's got better. And he realizes that the faith that he had was rewarded. That it's done. That Jesus came into his life and spoke truth and spoke power. And his son was alive again. Guys, here's why I want us to understand that in these two miracles, we see a side pointing that Jesus has power over ceremonial laws to turn it into something new. But it was fully expressed, this idea, this kind of abstract idea that he's taking ceremonial laws and making new wine out of it. But then he goes to show you, what, what does that really mean? It goes to show you that he's taking what is dead and making it alive. See how he bookends this passage of scripture that says, here's the idea, guys, here's the truth, here's the reality. All the striving, all the yearning you've done, to be alive. The ceremonial that I'm taking because it's failing, it didn't work, I'm making it new, I'm being extravagant, I'm giving you new wine. But let me tell you, that means there's a new temple, new way of worshiping. But ultimately, guys, this newness leads to overall salvation for you, a healing of you, a new body, a new heavens, and a new earth. And he's saying that I have power over all of it. When John wrote this gospel, he proclaimed in John, in John chapter 20, he says, I'm writing this so that you will hear it and believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And what John is expressing to you today is this, do you hear the words of the gospel? Do you hear the words of, his, of the miracles? Do you hear the signs pointing to this new reality that Jesus is the promised Messiah? That, come, that, that came into the world of the fullness of time and made something brand new. So here's the deal, guys. Here's what I want us to understand. We live in a world 2,000 years removed from this story. So what does that mean to us? Can I tell you that, as I said earlier today, that I, as, as I looked around the world and I see atrocities that we commit as I see heinous crimes, I see the brokenness of nature, as I see the world as we see it around us, I can't help but just, just desire so greatly in my heart, there needs to be something new. And I have the awesome privilege of, 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 of uh, Gina and I have so, um, a social worker, foster care specialist working, uh, living with us, and she was sharing a story um, of a family who just basically said, I don't want the child anymore. And it just, just breaks my heart to hear that, just to hear that, I just can't even comprehend that. You know, just to comprehend a, 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 a child not being wanted or loved by a parent. And how that is reality for so many people in this world. When we look at how many orphans we have in this world. When we see so much brokenness. 
And can I tell you this, guys, and I want you to know that when we look at it, there's a, there's, there's a way to look at it and say, guys, it's just, what's the hope, what's the purpose, let's just survive. But there's also another way, an alternative way, the way the Bible is calling us to look at it. And we look at this world and we can say, okay, this world is broken, but we have a God who says he's making something new. He gave us a promise that there will, will be a seed of the woman that will stop on the head of the serpent and all will be made right one day. And until that day happens, we get to be the ones to give hope to the hopeless, to give hope to ones that one day it will be made right and all that we suffered will have a purpose. Jesus is the one who has come and gives us that hope. And if you don't know him in that capacity, if you don't have that hope in this today, I want you so desperately to know him. That he takes the idea of our own striving to be made right before God, and he says, that's not the way. I give you the way. I am the way. And he's extravagant in his gift of love to you. And he can heal you and heal you now. And he's a good, good father. I'm going to ask the, the, the band to come back up as we close in a word of prayer. And as we close, I want to invite you, for those of you who are in this place today, and you just, you need to see God do something new in you. You need to see new wine. You have healing that you need. I encourage you guys, there are people who would love to just pray with you. Um, they're going to be wearing, most likely, yes, yellow lanyards. Yes, okay, wonderful. They'll be in different locations, just kind of around, and there's no pressure. Just during the last worship set, if you just need prayer, and this is for everybody, I want you guys to take advantage of it. Seek prayer. Be family together as we come and share our hearts and our wounds with each other. Let us pray for you, because it shows our utter need. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for making new wine. We thank you for your incredible love. God, we ask that you God, show us over and over again what it is that you're making something new. And may we have faith expressed in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.